All right. It's been, uh, it's been a, a month, seven, the last three weeks we were off, and it is great to be back home again, to worship back in a place where there's a, just a comfort and, and just it feels, feels, feels good for us, good to be back home again. But when we left uh, a few weeks ago, we were in the middle of our series on Job that I've entitled Questions Aloud. And so we're going to jump back in that today, and we will finish it up next week. Um, but we want to finish that off. Questions aloud, and uh, faith and doubt in the book of Job is what we're looking at. So get out your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Job, because we'll be digging into portions of it, bits and, bits and pieces. Uh, if you go to about page 354, I think, in the Bibles we gave you, you'll find pretty much our starting point for this morning. But just to give you a bit of a background, because it's been a little while, and we've already done four weeks on Job, we want to bring you up to speed for today. So far, we've only looked at the first seven chapters. Today, we will look at the next 31 chapters, so it will not take us. We're going to zip through a lot of it today. But what we've established so far is this. First of all, that it is okay to have questions <clears throat> about God. That's really where the title itself comes from. It's okay, questions are allowed, and you can speak them aloud. Job, <clears throat> excuse me, Job certainly did throughout the entire book of Job, and we've seen that. It's okay to have questions of God. We looked at the beginning story where the heavenly scene is set up, where God and Satan have this meeting, where they look at Job and where... Long story short, God allows Satan to take away everything Job has until finally even to strike his body, until he is completely destitute. He's got nothing left. His children are all dead. All of his possessions are gone. He is uh, head to foot in nasty sores. And we've even gone through some of the verses throughout the book that just say the horrible shape that he was in um, and sitting there. And, and one of the questions we asked at the very beginning when his things were taken from him, we asked ourselves the question and walked through the process. Of if God showed up and brought nothing with him, how would we react? Would that be okay? Would we still worship God? Job's answer to that was, yes, I'll still worship. Then we looked at the following week when God, attacked, when God allowed Satan to attack his body. We asked, well, if God showed up and didn't just bring nothing with him, but if God showed up and brought trouble with him, how would we react? And, God, and Job's reaction to that was, I will still worship him. Today, we're actually going to deepen that again. We're going to really get to, the, to a deeper point of, than even God bringing trouble with him, but we'll get to that in a moment. So we've seen this, we've gone through some of the challenges of, boy, God doesn't look like he's fair here, and we've dealt with some of that over the past few weeks, and, and, uh, and then uh, the last time we met together, we, we uh, had the situation in which Job's friends show up, they've traveled a long, a long way, they show up and they sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights and nobody says a word. So before we start criticizing Job's friends, which we will do a lot of today, we need to acknowledge that these are basically good people. When was the last time you went to a friend's side who was hurting and sat for seven days and seven nights in total silence just to be there with them to console them? Until you've done that, we need to be a little bit slower, I think, than we sometimes are at criticizing his friends. But then Job opens his mouth in chapter 3, and he just screams in his agony and his pain, why is God doing this to me? I don't get what's going on, is his essential cry. And one of the three begins to, by answering him and basically says, Job, you must have done something wrong. So the last time we met, we talked about the futility of arguing logic against someone who's in pain and what we should do instead, and we looked at that the last time we met. Well, today what we're going to take a look at is what we call the big opera in the middle of Job, all the screaming and crying and all of that stuff in chapter 7 through 37 of Job. And in order to introduce what that's all about today, take a look at this quick video. Morning, everybody. This is a corner in Fountain Valley. We're about three blocks from where you're sitting right now. On this corner several years ago, one of the worst crimes in the history of Fountain Valley happened. Jane Carver was a mother. She was a wife. She was a faithful Catholic. 
and she was a jogger. She just finished jogging around Mile Square Park, about half a mile down this street. And she walked down this street on her cool down to turn around this corner and go to her house, which is right there painted mostly in pink today. But she never made it to her house because right on this corner, a man was sitting in a car. And witnesses who saw this later described it this way. The man got out of his car, walked over to Mrs. Carver, stood in front of her where they talked for about five seconds, then he pulled out a gun, shot her in the face, got back in his car, and drove away. I happened to be the police chaplain on call that morning, and so I got a call telling me about this and went to the hospital where I was the person who had to tell her husband and her daughter that their wife and mother was dead. I had to help them call her son and tell them that his mother was dead. And then I had to sit across the room from them and answer this question. Why? We've all faced things like that in our life. Why do such good people go through such bad things sometimes? But I wanted to bring you to this corner to start the message today because I don't want the message today to just be about theology. How we answer these questions affect our lives because they impact from the deepest hurts that we, get, that we go through. So this morning, we're going to take a look at this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I'll tell you the rest of the story of the Carvers later, what the police eventually discovered and what I said to them that morning. But as I said in that little piece, it's important for us to understand as we do this talk this morning, a lot of it's going to be fairly theological. It's going to be really Bible study-esque. But beneath it all, there are real hurts from real people who cry out to God. And the way we find the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people, will have a great impact on the way we view God, on the way we live our lives, and eventually on what will happen to us in eternity because we'll base our decision on God on, to a large degree on how we answer that question. It's an important question, and this is what we're going to be looking at today. So, how can such bad things happen to such good people? Well, take a look at the book of Job. When we look at Job, we see pretty much everybody in it is a good person. Job is a profoundly good person. That begins at the first couple of verses of the of the entire book are what a wonderful person Job is. And the reason the conversation even begins is because God brags about Job's goodness to Satan. So we know Job's a good person. We know his three friends are good people. They came and they sit with him as we talked about. And every argument that they give is in defense of God and of righteousness. Their actions are noble. Their arguments are rational. Their arguments are God-honoring. Their arguments are sensible. And their arguments are all wrong. Why? Because when bad things happen to good people, I think it short-circuits something in our brain, in our hearts, and in our spirits. The little fairness module that we all have goes haywire. When really good people have just horrific things happen to them, especially if that really good person is me, we don't get it. Everything goes short-circuit, and we can't make sense of it. So we go back to the rational ideas and think one of these rational ideas has to fit And too often, none of them do. So they are going through that. Job's friends are, and Job is as well. And that's what happens in this big opera in the middle of Job, chapter 7 through 37. In essence, through this entire argument, what happens is this. Job presents, Job's friends present this argument. Here's their argument for chapter after chapter. They just restate it in different ways. Their argument goes this way. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. They state that again and again and again and again because it's the only logical thing that they can grasp onto that makes life seem fair and right and balanced and just. 
Well, Job comes back, and Job's argument goes like this. But I didn't do anything wrong, so there must be another explanation. They have logic on their sides. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. That makes sense. That's right. That's fair. Job, however, knows his own heart. They're just guessing. He knows his own heart, and his answer is, yeah, I get what you're saying. That makes sense. Bad things for bad people, good things for good people. That makes sense. But I know my life. I didn't do anything wrong. So you got any other ideas? And how many, of, how many times have all of us kind of had that? I don't get this. This doesn't make sense to me. Give me some other rationale. I would like this explained, please. See, his friends knew that he, he must have done something wrong. So they rested on what they knew must be right. He knew he hadn't done anything wrong, so he had nothing to rest on. How do you rest on I'm right, which is where he did land, if all these bad things are happening to you? And then we get really to the essence of Job, right in the middle of uh, good ways into Job. I think the essence of who Job is through all of this can be found in Job chapter 13, 15, where he says this, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I've heard that verse so many times. It's the picture of Job, the patient man, the person who endures all of this, and yet sits there and goes, God can kill me, but I'm still going to trust in him. And it is such a profound statement of faith, of trust, and of hope that he says, it doesn't matter what happens. It, it, it reminds me of the, the statement of the, the three Hebrew children before they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Our God will deliver us, but if not, we will serve him anyway. It's a similar one from Job. Though he slay me, he can kill me, but I'm still going to hope in him. So at this point, it really goes beyond what if God showed up and brought nothing with him? What if God showed up and brought trouble with him? It really goes to the point of what if God showed up in your life and brought nothing but pain and destruction with him? How would you respond then? Job's response was, he can kill me, but I'm still going to trust in him. However, as I was exploring through this this week, I noticed something very interesting. What I've just quoted to you isn't the whole verse. It's only half. And if you've been around Cornerstone for a while, you know I do not like taking stuff out of context. I like seeing what's going around on the outside because it'll change the way we look at it. And this one certainly does. Let's finish out the verse. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Anybody else? Those two just don't seem like they should go together in the same verse. Especially since Job is a poem. It's written in poetry, and Hebrew poetry exists in parallels. And so the next thing that comes along is supposed to say the same kind of thing. They're supposed to double it up, to double it. And this one is completely out of the blue. So you've got the first half, which sounds so polite and church-like. The thing we're supposed to feel when bad things happen. God can kill me, and I'll serve him anyway. You're not supposed to go, but when I get there, he got a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> that's what the second half of the verse is. That's what, right? That's what it is. Oh, God. Because he said, I'm gonna, I want it. what does it say? I will surely defend my ways to his face. Get me in front of God. Put me in front of his face. I got issues. In the same sentence, the same verse as, even if he kills me, I will trust him. How do those two exist in the same place? And yet they do. We know they do because, come on, if we're going to get real this morning, they both exist in us. At least hopefully the first part does. I know the second part does. 
Every one of us at one point or another has got, I don't get it. You, I got it. It's almost an impossible mixture of compliance and defiance in the same breath. And it happens over and over and over again throughout the middle of this extraordinary book. Job's attitude can be summed up in this way. I will trust and I will fight back. <laughs> I get into, how do they go together? And yet they do. I know even some of you are sitting here thinking, oh, that doesn't sound right, Pastor. It's, it's supposed to be about the patience of Job. He's supposed to be calm, right? The patient, patience, shmations. That's a pretty, that was a hard word to even say. Say it with shmations, but that doesn't work. There's no patience here. He's furious. He's screaming to the heavens with everything that he's got because he knows he's right and he's been wronged. The picture I think that we've got in too, church too often of the kind of sad, quiet, meek, gentle, calm, patient Job, I think that's a crock. I think we made it up because we want a comfortable faith. The real Job has edges that we're not comfortable with at all. The real book of Job has edges that I still don't get. And I've been studying this thing for months to bring it to you. I don't, it doesn't make, so much of it just plain doesn't make sense. So while we have a tendency sometimes to just explain it away so that we can be comfortable with it, and Job becomes this quiet, patient saint. But we read it. And remember, Job is the first book of the Bible ever to have been written. So before Genesis was written, before any other book of the Bible was written, Job was written. It stood alone for we don't know how long as the only written record from God to mankind, and this is the first picture God gives us of himself? That's like me, you know, meeting somebody online, they ask for a picture, and I send them my driver's license photo. Oh, come on, I can come up with something better than that. This is God's driver's license photo. He doesn't look so good in it sometimes. And yet he goes, yeah, this is me, bumps and all. Yeah, there are things you are not going to get, stuff you're not going to understand. And Job just, I, I don't get it, and he at least is honest about it. Remember, we began the series with this great quote from Philip Yancey. He said, God prefers honest disagreement to dishonest submission. Now, what Job had was honest submission and honest disagreement. And part of the good news, at least for me today, is that's okay with God. That's okay. How do we know that's okay with God? Isn't God get mad at that? I mean, I would if you were to come to me today and say, I got issues with God, I want to get in his face and I want to tell him what for. I mean, if I did that to you or you did that to me, the response would be, oh, wait a minute, you don't have any right to do that to God. Who do you think you are? Which is exactly what Job's friends say, chapter after chapter after chapter. But what does God say? Take a look at it, Job 42.7. God said to Eliphaz the Temanite, that's the lead spokesman of the three, three friends, I am angry with you and your two friends. Why? Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Are you kidding me? Job says, I'm right. God's got some issues here. He's got some explaining to do. I'm going to get in his face and I'm going to demand some answers. They say, no, God is righteous. He is above us. His ways are higher than our ways. You must have done something wrong. God is fair. He is righteous. He is just. And God says to those people, you're wrong. And to Job, who's screaming at the top of his lungs and of his spirit, God, you've got some explaining to do. He's right. 
That'll rattle your theology cage a little bit, won't it? I hope so. I think we need a little more rattling than we sometimes get. They were defending God as being fair, reasonable, sensible, appropriate. And they were wrong. Let's move along. From this book and from the rest of Scripture, we learn the following about why bad things happen to good people. We're going to end this sentence nine different ways this morning. Bad things happen to good people, first of all, because we live in enemy territory. I won't spend a lot of time on this this morning because we did it first and second uh, messages of this series. And if you want to get online to the website, cornerstonefv.com, they're all on there to listen to if you'd like to get some of the backup to this. And I say that like nobody would, and then I keep talking to people who actually go online and listen to me. It amazes me. I wouldn't sit in my office and listen to me, but apparently some people do. Bad things happen to good people because we live in enemy territory. We talked about this as I say already. When we become a Christian, we have to recognize that this world is under the control of Satan and of his forces. And when we become a Christian, we sign up on the, re- on the rebel side. And so automatically, the forces that rule this world are against us. And so it only makes sense that we're going to take some hurt, that we're going get to some, get some hits. It just makes sense. We, in the church, I think one of the mistakes we've made in the church for the last 2,000 years is we keep trying to reverse that. We keep trying to kick Caesar off the throne and sit in his seat. And for several hundred years, the church thought they had done that successfully, and they just made a mess of the world pretty much. That's why they're called the Dark Ages, just as an example. Didn't work real well. Christians, we don't hold on to earthly power with very much grace. We're not good at it. We're better being the kid in the back throwing spitballs we're better being the rebel force you know, coming around and, you know, with guerrilla tactics. We're not good as the main people in charge of the political structure. We've never done it well. I don't know why we think we ever are going to. That doesn't mean that we don't try to influence the political system. It doesn't mean we don't vote. It doesn't mean any of that. It just simply means we need to be careful about what our calling is and is not. And we're, just, we're better as the outsiders. That's because we're rebels. We're rebels in a, in a world that will not have godly order until God does it. And in the meantime, we just we stand back and be you know, shooting. <laughs> we live in enemy territory. Second thing, we've also gone over this, so we won't spend too much time at it. Bad things happen to good people because evil is unfair. Just this past week, the trial's finally over, and the guilty verdict came down against this, I can't think of words to call this individual, who kidnapped, raped, and buried Jessica Lunsford alive. The words stick in my throat to even say them. This little nine-year-old girl who held her little purple dolphin. And as the judge talked about how there were even holes in the bag showing that she was alive when she was buried and trying to claw her way out, how evil like that exists, I don't understand. But just this past week, one step towards the closest thing will come to justice in this where earth happened where he received the death penalty. And you look at that, and you have to... What Part of what we try to do is we look at something so horrific, and we think there's got to be a reason for it. There's got to be something that balances that out. You, how do you balance that out? What can possibly ever be done that can make that balance? It can't. So we've got to give up on trying. God hates evil because it's unfair, because it's evil. If it was just darkness to light and it all balanced out, well, fine, no big deal. There'd be no reason to be against it. But you can't look at things like that and say there's a balance. There is no balance. Evil is wrong. It is unfair. It hurts people who should not be hurt. 
And that's why God hates it. And so it's evil's fault that bad things happen to good people. That's one of the reasons. Third reason, bad things happen to good people because bad things happen to everyone. Welcome to what we call the human race. Matthew 5.45, Jesus is speaking and says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We all get the same sunshine. We all get the same downpours. I've noticed this. Once you become a Christian, the law of gravity doesn't ease up for you. So why should the law of entropy? For those of you who've forgotten your high school physics, law of entropy is the law that states everything goes from a state of order to disorder. Basically, everything's falling apart. That's what entropy means. So why should that change once we become a Christian? We don't expect to start floating. The laws still apply. It still happens. Bad things happen to everyone. Just this past weekend, the reason we were gone for Sunday is Shelley and I went up to visit some friends up in the Bay Area. We stayed in their house, and this is an extraordinarily wealthy couple. Their house is almost the square footage of our church. And um, just just literally boxes, he's showing me, pulling them out still in the boxes of of um, original artwork that are worth tens of thousands of each. He doesn't have places to hang them. He's just got so much stuff. Really nice people. They've been friends of ours forever. They offered us their home, so of course we're going to stay in it. We're sitting there one day for breakfast, and I'm looking around this house, and I'm seeing all their stuff and the pool. And I've got to tell you, I, you know, full confession time this morning, I'm looking around, and I'm starting to get a little bit jealous and a little bit ticked off. So I'm sitting there, and I'm looking around, God, going, God, I don't get this. You guys, Sure, he works hard, but I work as hard as he does, but I'm never going to have this because I'm in the ministry. <laughs> Thanks for that calling. Appreciate it. And I'm, I'm sitting there with this kind of attitude, kind of bubbling up inside me, looking around. This guy gets everything he wants, whenever he wants it. Everything works. He's got the Midas touch. Everything turns into gold. It's great. He's got all this stuff. Why does he get all of this and doesn't have any of that hassle? And I'm in the middle of that thought. His wife comes into the kitchen in her wheelchair because she's got multiple sclerosis. I I almost physically felt God's hand slap my face. (laughs) Bad things happen to everybody. You can look around and envy somebody else's life, but it's never all good for anybody. Welcome to the human race. Bad stuff happens. Fourth, bad things happen to good people because goodness should be its own reward. Right? Take a look with me to Luke. Just jump ahead for a bit. Hang on to Job. We'll be back there in a bit. But in Luke, Jesus is speaking. Luke 6.27, he says this, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop, from, stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Sounds familiar, right? Why? Why do we do that? So we'll get good stuff back? Does he say, if you do all of this, then you'll have wealth and health and beyond compare. You'll always be loved and you'll never have a broken heart if you do these wonderful things. What does he say? Take a look at it. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do it in order to get something back, that's not called goodness. That's called capitalism. I'm fine with capitalism, but let's just not call it what it isn't. 
If it's just an exchange of goods and services, there's no good. In fact, he goes on and says, that's what the evil people do. Even, quote, sinners, unquote, love those who love them. Sinners get the idea that I'm going to give so I can get back again. If that's all you're doing, don't call it anything it's not. He goes on to explain, and their goodness should be its own reward. We do good because it's the right thing to do. If you only do it for some exterior blessing, don't call it goodness. Call it an exchange. Call it capitalism. It could be, a good, it could be proper and right and okay, but let's not label it wrongly. Goodness should be its own reward. Fifth, bad things happen to good people, but none of us is truly good. We've got to really kind of put this one in, don't we? It's twice in the Gospels where Jesus said, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. That was really hard to accept in Job's time. You must have done something wrong for bad things to happen because if you're good, then good things will happen to you like us. It's really hard for us to understand in our era because, I mean, take a look in the mirror. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Right? We're all convinced that we're the most wonderful creatures that have ever walked on the face of the earth. That's just who we are. We're great. And we tell, well, we tell our kids that. Oh, everything they do is wonderful. Everything I do is wonderful. Everything you do is wonderful. Everything's great. And we're all so built up, and it's just not real. But if we believe that, if we really get that poison into our head that we're just so wonderful, then no wonder we're so cycled down when something wrong happens to us. The idea that we deserve nothing but heaps of blessings outside of God's grace is just simply not biblical. We've got to let it go. There was only one good person who ever lived. And he didn't have just good stuff come his way. We'll see a little more of that in a moment. Six, bad things happen to good people because good people have more to lose. Let's go to the common working definition of good people, recognizing the Bible just said none of us is good in the righteousness of God sort of way. But the common definition of goodness is what? It's I look out for others, I give when I don't need to, I help people without getting something back. The common definition of goodness by every single thing you can think of is about selflessness, putting others in front of me. Common definition of bad is someone who what? Is selfish. It's all for me, only for me, and I'll hurt others if I need to get what I need to get. That's the definition of bad, right? There's no argument on that. It's just what it is. Now, if that person is really bad and doesn't care about anybody else and doesn't have anybody that really is dear to them and that really matters to them and all they want is stuff for them, how are you going to hurt them? They've got less places you can hurt them at. A good person has all kinds of people and all kinds of principles that if you violate, cause pain in their life. How am I going to hurt the person who hates everybody, who am I going to get to that's going to bother them? But if you've got connections in your life with people who you love and who care for you and you're interdependent upon one another and you have this passion for each other and for goodness and for rightness, you have more places to be hurt in. Makes sense, right? I mean, again, it's not fair, but it's, it's part of the working of it. Good people simply have more to lose. Number seven, Bad things happen to good people, and we usually don't know why. You've got to throw this in because we can throw as many explanations as we want, but most of the time you're going to look at it and go, ah. was the biggest sin of Job's friends that they were trying to answer unanswerable questions? 
Actually, I don't think that was the biggest sin. I don't think the biggest sin was trying to answer the questions because Job was trying to get answers to the questions. I think their biggest sin was probably that they assumed they had answers to unanswerable questions. Searching for the answers is fine. Assuming you've got them when you haven't, that's just... Have you ever gone through a time where you've... We all do this. We have times in our lives where things just seem to be working spiritually and you get stuff and it just makes sense and it clicks. And other times where spiritual confusion sets in. I'm going through a spiritual confusion time recently where it just weird, stupid stuff I just don't have answers for. So I've been pastoring long enough that if you come to me with an issue, I'll have, I'll have an answer for you. But I'm not finding so many from me lately. I hate that. Because I like having answers. I'm having to say I don't know way more often than I'm comfortable with. But I have to be okay with that because sometimes you won't know why. In fact, usually you won't know why. So back to the little clip we started with. I sat with that family after that woman had been shot and after telling them that she had died and after them mourning for a bit while we were waiting for their pastor to come because he was hours away. He had to drive there. And they looked at me and they said, why? Why would God allow something like this to happen? My answer was, I don't know why. I wish I had an answer, but I do not. Sometimes honesty demands that we do that. If you don't know, you don't know. And the whys of bad things happening to good people are often not there. And I think if Job's friends had just settled in and said, you know what? We've known you for years and we've trusted you for years. If you insist on your innocence, we've got to trust you and we've got to sit with you in silence again because we don't know why either. But they had to go for the pat answer and that is too often too dangerous. Usually we won't know why. Which leads us to number eight. Bad things happen to good people. But why is never as important as now what? I've got to tell you truthfully, I have given up asking most of the why questions a long time ago. Because I got answers so seldom, I figured it's a losing game. I've also noticed we ask why when things that have happened consistently to other people finally happen to us. Right? Other people get sick, and we pray for them. We get sick. Why? Well, haven't you noticed it's kind of going around? Right? Other people go bankrupt. They lose their job. Oh, that's terrible. We'll pray for them. It happens to me. Why? Right? It's only when it gets personal to us that we even bother to ask the question. We don't even ask it at other times. What matters is not why it happened, but what we choose to do after it happens. That's what matters. What matters is, now what? Okay, this is what you've got, or this is what's been taken from you. Now what are you going to do? And that's the lesson of Job. It's not the reasons, because guess what? God and Satan aren't going to have a meeting tomorrow to talk about you or me. So that scenario is not going to happen again. The next time something bad happens to me, it's going to be another reason. (laughs) And I'm probably not going to know what it is any more than Job knew what it was for him. So Job just simply said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And I'm going to scream for answers in the meantime. 
but he stayed true even while he screamed. Let's let the wise go sometimes and just take a look at it and go, okay, now what am I going to do? Am I going to stay righteous? Am I going to do what God wants me to do as best I know? Or am I going to let this push me off of where God wants me to be? And finally, as the band comes up, number nine, bad things happen to good people, but Jesus took the worst for us. The truth of salvation, the truth of the gospel is that the only truly good person who ever existed had the worst things happen to him that have ever happened to anyone. And thankfully in that one, we have a reason why. The why is sitting in this room today. Why is you and me? Why did the worst things ever happen to an individual happen to the only good person who ever lived? Because Jesus said, if I don't bear their punishment, they aren't strong enough to bear it, and I will bear it for them. So today, in just a moment, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion. The way we do it in our churches, on the sides and in the back, at least the way we're going to do it today, sides and in the back are the cups and the bread. And as we're worshiping at any time, you can get up, you can go over, grab a cup and grab the bread. And you can take it right there. Or you can sit back in your seat. You can come and kneel at the front. You can walk back and forth while you pray, whatever you want to do. And I also want you to be aware that we have an open communion in our church. You don't have to be a member. This could be your first time. As long as you know Jesus as your Savior, as long as you're a part of the family of God, we welcome you to participate in communion with us. But we're going to do so because we're going to honor the only good person who ever lived for taking the worst of my punishment that I did deserve so that I don't have to take it. He took separation from God so I don't have to. He took the loneliness and the despair to where he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, why have you rejected me? Why are you hurting me? The scream of Job was the scream of Jesus. But Jesus had the why for you and for me. That was why. I want you to stand with me. And what I want us to do as we go to communion this morning is that I want you to take your Job situation, whatever it might be, because life is life and people are people in a room like this. There's a ton of us who are going through some Job stuff right now. And as you go for communion, I want you to take that Job stuff with you. And I want you to lay the why question aside. And I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, show me now what? What do I do with this? How do I be righteous through this? What's the next step for me from you? And as you eat the bread and as you drink the cup, offer that to him. Let's worship. Praise you, Jesus. Lord, we only stand here this morning because of your grace. And thank you, Lord, that grace is no less fair than evil. That you give us good when we don't deserve it, too. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us today. And I pray, Lord, for those who are going through just horrific life circumstances today, that you have spoken comfort to them. 
just want to close with a moment. I want to point out to you that as we take communion this morning, God's answer to the unfairness in the world is not a logical argument. It's Jesus on the cross. Because God looks at it and says, I can't explain that away. All I can do is offer you this. Grace. Just to close out the story of Lady Jane Carver, who was shot, it took years for them to understand why somebody would get out of a car and shoot a woman for no reason. It turned out to be a case of mistaken identity. He was a hitman who was supposed to kill somebody else. There's evil in the world, and sometimes it spills over and hits us in horrible ways. And so God says, well, there's no balancing scales, but I'm just going to pour out my grace, and I'm going to spill it out all over the place, and I'm going to hit as many people as I can, and all we've got to do is open up our arms to receive it. Not a logical explanation. It's simply grace. And we get to be distributors thereof. So what's the old saying? Don't curse the darkness, just light a candle. Let's quit complaining about the bad and let's just be Jesus in people's hearts and lives. Let's be there for them like he is for us. Thank you, Lord. You have spoken today because every time your word is opened up, you touch us with it. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for comforting us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for challenging us. Thank you for making us think in hard ways that we didn't want to bother thinking today. Thank you for pushing us to be more than we are. Thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Hi there. If my voice sounds familiar because you've just been listening to a message from me, my name's Carl Vaders. If the voice you're hearing now is different from the voice you just heard, well, either way, the message you just heard was preached at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. And we're just tagging this on to the end of, in case you got a copy of a copy of a copy of something, and I'm not sure where it came from. Cornerstone Christian Fellowship is located at 17575 Euclid Street in Fountain Valley, California. You can get a hold of us through the phone number 714-962-5412 or check us out on the web at cornerstonefv. That's cornerstonefv for Fountain Valley.com.